effectively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk highlights the appearance of Venus and Saturn pairing up for their brilliant conjunction. Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson speaks with Bethany Zarnowski from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy about some current events happening locally in our area. In her segment, Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips shares her conversation with Richie Cheeger, who raises pet chickens in his backyard. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky attended a memorial service in Kyiv today for seven Interior Ministry officials killed in a helicopter crash this week. Seven others also died, including a child, when the helicopter went down Wednesday on the eastern outskirts of the capital. The crash is under investigation. It happened days after a Russian missile attack on the southeastern city of Dnipro killed at least 45 people. Russia's war in Ukraine is nearing the end of its 11th month. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the world must not allow Russian President Vladimir Putin to get away with ignoring borders and terrorizing a neighboring country. And if we allow this to go forward with impunity in Ukraine, then we open a Pandora's box where would-be aggressors around the world will say, hmm, I can get away with it. I can get go ahead, seize another country's territory by force, erase its borders, kill its people, destroy its infrastructure, and nothing's going to happen. Blinken spoke yesterday at a foreign policy forum at the University of Chicago. Turkey's feud with Sweden is escalating. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Ankara canceled a visit by the Swedish defense minister after Sweden issued permits for anti-Turkish protests. Turkey has been holding up Sweden and Finland's bid to join NATO, demanding the extradition of more than 100 people Turkey considers terrorists. Turkey's defense minister says a visit by his Swedish counterpart is off, saying it no longer holds any importance or point because Sweden continues to allow public demonstrations against Turkey. The Swedish defense minister said, quote, relations with Turkey are very important for Sweden, and we look forward to continuing the dialogue on common security and defense issues at a later date. Reports that a far-right activist from Denmark planned to burn a copy of the Islamic holy book, the Quran, outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm drew condemnation from Turkish officials. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. A federal judge ruled yesterday that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis violated the First Amendment when he suspended a Tampa area state attorney. Steve Newborn from member station WUSF reports. Andrew Warren was twice elected as state attorney of Florida's Hillsborough County, but the Democrat ran afoul of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis when he signed a pledge not to prosecute cases involving new state laws on abortion and transgender health care. DeSantis suspended him last year, accusing Warren of neglect of duty. Warren shot back at a news conference held after the ruling was issued. The idea that a governor can break federal and state law to suspend an elected official should send shivers down the spine of anyone who cares about free speech, the integrity of our elections, or the rule of law. 
Warren has not said whether he plans to appeal. For NPR News, I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph John charged with crimes. About 15% of them have been members of the military or of a police force. About half those arrested so far have pleaded guilty. The three Marines arrested Wednesday work in military intelligence. Video showed them moving through the Capitol for nearly an hour and taking selfies with a statue wearing a red Make America Great Again hat. The State Department is trying to make it easier to help refugees resettle in the U.S. NPR's Joel Rose reports the department has announced a new private sponsorship program. The pilot program is called Welcome Corps, and it will allow groups of ordinary U.S. citizens and permanent residents to sponsor refugees from around the world. Until now, the State Department has relied on professional resettlement organizations to do this work. But those groups have been struggling to rebuild after deep cuts during the Trump administration. The pilot program is modeled on previous efforts to resettle Afghans and Ukrainians in the states. The Welcome Corps will start small, with the goal of resettling 5,000 refugees in the first year. But it could mark a significant shift in how the U.S. refugee system works. Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls it, quote, the boldest innovation in refugee resettlement in four decades. Joel Rose, NPR News. The NFL playoffs resume this weekend. Today, the Kansas City Chiefs will play Jacksonville in the AFC. In the NFC, the Philadelphia Eagles will host the New York Giants tonight. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts and the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. segments. My email address is startalk at farmingcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Startalk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson, who spoke by telephone with Bethany Zarnowski from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy. Their conversation highlights some current events happening locally in our area. I'm speaking today to Bethany Zarnowski. Bethany is the Communications and Development Director for the Delaware Highlands Conservancy, which is headquartered in the Van Scott Nature Reserve in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. Great to have you here today. What can you tell me about the Delaware Highlands Conservancy and its mission? 
Well, the Conservancy is a nonprofit land trust that's based in the Upper Delaware River region, and we work in Pennsylvania and New York on both sides of the river, and we work with landowners to um, conserve their working farms and forests and clean water and wildlife habitat on their property. Um, And we also offer educational programming throughout the year. Now, I mentioned the Van Scott Nature Reserve in my introduction. Can you tell us about the reserve? Yes, this property was donated to us in 2020 by the Van Scott family. It's a beautiful 140-acre property in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. Um, And since it was donated, we've made it our headquarters, and we've opened it to the public as a nature reserve with about three miles of hiking trails. Um, It has beautiful wildflower meadows and woods and wetlands. So um, we're really thrilled to be here and to have this property open to the public. I've been there myself several times, and I, I can't agree with you. It's a very beautiful piece of property, especially up on top near the, uh, I think you call it the quarry up there. Just a magnificent view up there. Yes, the the scenic views are incredible from the top. You can see um, to the Catskills and to High Point State Park in New Jersey on a clear day. So, And just the beautiful surrounding rolling hills of Wayne County farmland. It's The, the views are really amazing. They are. They are indeed. Now, my own contact with the Delaware Highland Conservancy is through the Eagle Observation Program, where I'm a volunteer. I have to say that it's been uh, very, very interesting and uh, and amazingly rewarding being a part of the program and and helping people to observe eagles and and do a little education. The bald eagle itself is is just such a, a magnificent sight in its natural environment. Can you tell us a little bit about the Eagle Observation Program? Sure. Our, our Winter Eagle Watch program is in January and February. We have a group of wonderful volunteers like yourself who go out um, and stand out in the cold on winter weekends in our eagle observation areas up and down the Delaware River um, and help visitors look for eagles in the wild and answer their questions and just share um, helpful information. Um, so we're, we're really grateful that we have these volunteers who um, help us run this program throughout the winter, which we really could not do without them. Um, and in addition to that, we offer a series of guided bus tours through the winter so um, people can jump on a bus and take a, take a ride throughout the region and learn about eagles and um, stop at the observation areas and get out and look for eagles. Now, why, are, why is January and February the best times to observe eagles in the area? Um, that is when the lakes and rivers in Canada and upstate New York will freeze over. And so those eagles that live there the rest of the year will fly south in search of open water where they can find fish and where they can um, roost in the trees. So our area has water that stays open in the winter, and so we get hundreds of these um, migrating eagles that come here. And then as it starts to warm up in um, this, the late February, early March, they, they head back up north. Now, um, you said you talked about the um, bus that goes around. What what are the dates for that, please? Um, we have a bus tour just about every weekend in January and February. Um, our next one is the 21st of January um, and several weekends in February. So all of that information is on our website, which is DelawareHighlands.org. Those tours are selling out pretty quickly. Some of them all are already sold out. So if you're interested in getting tickets, I would encourage you to get on there pretty soon and sign up. Anything that our uh, listeners um, should know before they visit any of the observation sites, what are some of the rules that uh, of Eagle etiquette that they should follow? Um, we just ask people to be uh, respectful and 
um, just just quiet and cautious when they're there. Um, the eagle blinds, the viewing blinds are there so that you can go inside and view the eagles while staying hidden from their view. So you're not um, making them feel nervous and making them fly, which then forces them to use up that energy that they're trying to conserve during the winter. So eagle etiquette is really just... Um, you know, being quiet, if you're in your car, stay in your car or go into the viewing area and watch eagles from there um, and not doing anything to try to make the eagle fly or disturb them in any way. Where are the eagle observation sites? Are they close together? Yeah, they're throughout the region. We have a map on our website. We have one at the Mongop Reservoir at the Zane Gray Museum is our winter field office. That's in Lackawaxon, Pennsylvania. And across the road there along the Lackawaxon River is a great place to observe eagles. We have another observation area in Berryville. There's a nice deck in Narrowsburg, New York, that you can often see eagles from. So um, that map is on our website, which is, again, DelawareHighlands.org slash eagles. And it has GPS coordinates, everything. So you can plan your own driving tour if you want to do that. What if somebody wanted to get uh, involved with this program at present? How would they do that? Absolutely. There's a volunteer sign-up form on our website um, that you can fill out or just um, send an email to info at DelawareHighlands.org, and we welcome volunteers. We have, you know, volunteers for our Winter Eagle Watch program, but also um, year-round activities. If you wanted to um, visit protected properties with us, we do that every summer, or, you know, do some work on the reserve or help out in the office. That's all on our website as well, and, and we really welcome volunteers to join us. Lots of opportunities for people to get involved with the Upper Del- with the uh, Delaware Highlands Conservancy. Absolutely, yes, and we, we hope you will get involved. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned some of the other programs. Um, could you could you run through those again? What other programs does the Conservancy make available to the public? Throughout the year, we offer a lot of events, often at the our Vanscott Nature Reserve or at other locations with our partners. We'll do guided hikes and walks and workshops. We have our annual dinner coming up on April 29th, which is just a few months away. Um, so lots of different things. We've we've done um, chainsaw safety workshops. We run a program called uh, Women in Their Woods for Women Forest Landowners. So lots of different things for um, all ages to participate in. And we plan. We have a great schedule that we're working on for 2023. With lots of different family activities at the reserve. That sounds great. As I said, my own contact with the uh, Delaware Highlands Conservancy has been nothing but positive. I've been to the Van Scott a number of times to walk on the trails, and certainly I've been doing the eagle observing. We just started, and, and we did see uh, some immature and one mature uh, bald eagle flying over us. So it was pretty, pretty magnificent. That's great. I'm glad it's been such a positive experience. It has, and certainly. Bethany, thank you for being with us today. Anything uh, you'd like to add? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me. That was Radio Catskill volunteer Joseph Johnson speaking by telephone with Bethany Zarnowski from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy. Joseph is also a volunteer with their Eagle Observation Program. The webpage DelawareHighlands.org has their event information. Good morning, this is Stephanie Phillips, 
with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today I'm with Richie Cheeger who's going to tell us what facilities and equipment we might need to raise chickens in our backyard and what difficulties we may encounter. Richie will take it from here. My interest in chickens started when I was about four years old. We had some very orthodox Jewish neighbors down on the ground floor. We lived up on the third floor in a building in Williamsburg. And it was around Yom Kippur. And they came in one day wheeling in a shopping cart six chickens. And I fell in love with the chickens. I sat there all day petting and playing with the chickens. I I was in love. And then I read at a very early age, and we had a book of knowledge in my house, so I looked it up, and they had four barred Plymouth Rocks and two white Plymouth Rocks. And I came running down the next day or two days later to tell them, and the chickens weren't in the same shape anymore. Apparently, (laughs) they had done that awful thing, Schlug and Kapuras. And they had the chickens killed and they were eating them. And I saw them on the sink being koshered. And I, they explained these were those chickens. And I remember I got hysterical. And I wouldn't eat chicken for years. You're going to have to explain the shlug and kapoor. It's an arcane practice that is still done by some very, very orthodox Jewish people where they take a chicken by the legs and wind it around their head and then they think that all all, all their sins go into the chicken and then the chicken is killed and is eaten. I don't like it because I think it's a very frightening thing to happen for the chickens. I mean, they're not physically like banging the chicken around or, or anything, but... It's scary, and it's unkind, and you can do it with money. You can put money, because my family did it. I came from a pretty orthodox background. My family would put money into a sock and then wind it around your head and give the money to charity. I remember that, so you don't need the chicken. (laughs) I think nowadays people throw bread into the water or even leaves because we don't want to feed the ducks the wrong thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, throwing your sins away. Right. How do they survive outside when it gets very cold around here? It can go down to zero. It goes below zero. Uh, We have a heater in the coop, and I uh, leave it on for them. And if they, I mean, when the weather is bitter, I don't let them out. And which is why I'm sorry the coop is so small, that little coop. I have the heater on all the time, so if the day is not bitter and they want to go out, they can, and then they can back into a warm coop, you know. It's actually a heater. We just have a heat lamp. Uh, That's worked. I've used that. I used an infrared heat lamp. Yeah, That, that, that did some good. This is something that attaches to the wall, and it gives off some heat. And since the coop is really enclosed and no wind gets in, it's okay. The the problem you have to watch for when it gets bitter cold is if you have 
birds with large single combs. You know what a single comb is, right? It's the kind of comb that's on top of the rooster or hen's head with the serrations in mm-hmm. it. it. You know, you see, it's the most common kind is a single comb. But it, the ones with the big single combs freeze, and then they get frostbite, and the tissue becomes necrotic, and it falls off. Uh-huh. Or also the tips of their feet. You have to be careful. Make sure that the inside of the coop is dry and that the water is available. One way of doing that is you can get a, a an electric water heater, which just your water bowl goes on that, and it keeps the water from freezing. You can do that, too. Yeah. Chickens are wonderful. <laughs> they are. How do you convince the chickens to go into the hen house at night? They just go. The only one who doesn't, I have a hen named Ruthie. She's one of the leghorn pullets. I have to kind of go after her at night and say, get inside the coop. So I come out with the dogs because my dogs won't hurt the chickens. And the three of us get Ruthie in the coop. The other three go in by themselves. But I have to chase Ruthie. Yeah, we've had that problem of them not going in. When we introduce a new chicken into the flock, and then it doesn't know where to go, the ones who are raised there know that that's where they came from and that's where they go out. Right. Well, what I used to do when I'd bring a new chicken, I wouldn't put any new chickens in the scoop. It's too small. But when I used to do it in the big coop, I had a separate compartment that was fenced off inside the coop. And introducing a new chicken can be a daunting task. I would keep the new ones in that side compartment so they could see each other. It was all wire, and they would see each other for at least a week. And then before I'd ever let them out, I would let them all stay inside together until the new one was comfortably established in the coop. And then I would let them go out. They they come back in immediately. Yeah, they were, once they were comfortable and they knew where to go. What specifications would you recommend for keeping, say, maybe six chickens? Well, if you use the idea that each chicken needs three square feet, which is the minimum. Remember, that's the minimum. You need three square feet per chicken, so it's six times three. You'd need like 18 square feet. You can get these ready-made buildings, and they make great chicken coops. They're sheds, actually, and they make great coops. I have one that's 8 by 10, but we use it as a shed, and I have one that's 10 by 12. That's 120 square feet, and that's plenty of room an eight by ten is eight times ten. It's eighty square feet. That's plenty of room for six chickens. So and that's you, for you where they're that. running around, or you let them out. Oh, I always into the let yard. them out. I always let them out. I don't. I don't like to keep them clogged in. The only time I keep them locked in is in horrendous weather. If the weather's horrendous, I don't let them out. Otherwise, they want to run around. It goes back to how chickens used to live. Before factory farming and before the animal didn't count and it was just a number and it really didn't matter. And then the age of caged layers came in and it's unconscionable the way chickens are kept. Chickens are probably 
kept in the most cruel fashion of almost any other animal. I've seen them in the laying cages. As a matter of fact, there was a farm not too far from us that had them, and the guy would call me when he was getting rid of his chickens, and he'd say, you want a few cages of chickens? And I'd say, sure. I would take them. Their nails were about a f- an inch and a half long because they never walked. Their combs were white. There was no sunlight that hit it to, to keep things going. The comb uh, regulates the blood pressure. It, it helps do that. They were in such bad shape. I would take them, I think it was six chickens in a tiny cage where they could barely stand up, sit down, lay an egg, and the eggs would come out on a conveyor belt. It's cruel. There's no other word for it. And then the end of their life would be they'd be sent off for some soup, Campbell's soup, whatever company made the soup. It's just cruel. And then the chickens raised from meat are crowded in so badly. And genetically, they're modified to where they're not meant to live. They get to a certain age, they, what you call Rock Cornish game hens, the, where everybody gets their own little chicken, and nobody knows these Rock Cornish game hens are baby chicks. They're between four and six weeks old. I went to agricultural college for a year, and the things I saw made me sick because the animals just didn't count. They were numbers, whether it was chickens or cattle or any of the pigs. Oh, my God, what they do to pigs is unbelievable because a pig is as smart and as sensitive as a dog, and they're kept in sensory-deprived conditions. Yeah, they also I, have bred them for so they have very heavy breast meat and oh the and chickens fact, right the they, chickens and they will eat not pigs no yeah and and, so they, <laughs> and and they're to such an extent that they will topple over right they can't stand up when they did this white Cornish by White Rock Cross it was I don't know what they did but it was genetically modified it really is and I hope I'm using the right words but they do they fall over they can't walk on their own legs. It's the rare one that gets to live. When we first moved here, which was 50 years ago, the chicken trucks would come by, but they had wooden dowels in the crates, and the chickens would fall off the crates, and we would take them in. (laughs) Our first chicken was Oliver, and Oliver would live in the kitchen with us. But they don't fall out anymore because the crates are plastic. So the dowels don't fall out. And, oh, God, I used to run after them in South Fallsburg. I used to see them on the street. And I'd run after them and I'd grab them because those are the ones that fell off the truck. And I remember uh, uh, some little man running after me and saying, that's not your chicken. That's not your chicken. <laughs> and I said, it is now. And I grabbed two of them and threw them in my car. You know, whatever I could catch, I took. And uh, we kept them as long as they could live. The treatment of chickens on what we call factory farms is just disgusting. It's wrong. It should be stopped. The foie gras company farm here should be stopped. We need to be kind. I'm not telling people don't raise these animals for your own use, of course. But do it kindly. That's all. So now you know what you'll need to make your pet chickens comfortable. My guest today has been Richie Cheeger, environmental advocate and chicken lover. 
you'd like to suggest topics for future Now You Know segments, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Joseph Johnson, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Bethany Sarnowski from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy and Richie Cheeger for his compassion and enthusiasm raising chickens. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Here's a way to support Radio Catskill that makes the most financial sense. Become a sound supporter. It's easier on your budget because instead of giving us one lump sum of $120 or $240, you can support Radio Catskill with an automatic contribution of $10 or $20 a month. And it works better for us because it guarantees a regular flow of support to the station. To set up your credit card or bank account as a sound supporter, just go to wjffradio.org and make your monthly recurring contribution. Tens of thousands of tech workers have been laid off in recent months. In an industry that once offered endless opportunity, the workforce is now battling over a small number of jobs. Competing with that market is crazy because right now it's like flip, right? The situation flip. And for